Let's bow again. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the privilege we have to worship you, to exalt your name, and to exalt your son Jesus. And Father, I pray as we look into your word, you would use it uh, to work out your will in our lives. Change our hearts, Lord God, so that you would be glorified through our response. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you'll recognize that sometimes it can be difficult, that instantly you have those who are opposed to you, maybe even in your own families, whatever it might be, uh, and there are those who might even be hostile towards you. The Lord Jesus said, don't be surprised if the world hates you. It hated me first. I'm just paraphrasing from John. The reality is a man apart from Christ doesn't want Christ and hates Christ. Uh, and so when you come to faith, you're going to have opposition. You're going to have difficulty. There's the temporal sufferings, but there's the glories to follow. Now, as we go through those trials, they can be discouraging because there's all kinds of different manifestations of how uh, opposition can come in our lives and difficulties and trials. And the Lord God is a gracious God. He doesn't want us to, to crumble under the pressure. He doesn't want us to uh, fall apart. He doesn't want us to get shaken up. He wants to encourage us that we will be able to stand in the midst of those difficulties. And so we're going to see today how we can endure the trials that following Jesus brings. And we're going to see that as we thank the Lord and think about our glorious salvation in Christ, uh, putting the word in our hearts that God uses that to encourage us. Turn your Bibles to Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 13 to 15. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. Now, as we come to the book of Second Thessalonians, just a reminder of the context. Uh, the Apostle Paul is writing a church that is less than a year old in the faith. You'll remember that Acts chapter 17 and also 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 reveals the conversion of these Thessalonians. Uh, they were pagans, they were idolaters, they heard the word of God, and they turned to God from idols to serve the living and one and only true God and to wait for his son who delivers us from the wrath to come. They got saved. And when they heard the word of God, chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, they received it not as the word of men, but the word of God for what it really is, the word of God, which performs its work in you who believe. And the apostle Paul, as he was sharing the word of God, was run out of town, run out of Thessalonica, and he was concerned about them. He was concerned about their faith having been with them just for a short time, having been then orphaned from them. And so he sent Timothy to see how they're doing in the faith. And he got a report back. And it's after this report he shares this first letter of Thessalonians uh, to them. And he clears up some issues uh, that, were, uh, that they were confused about. And then just in, in less than a couple months probably, he wrote Second Thessalonians because uh, it's very clear that... Uh, Chapter 1 of Second Thessalonians speaks of Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy, and there was only a short window that they were together. And so it's probably within a year. They're still less than a year old in the faith. And there are some other issues that have come up that Paul is concerned about for the faith of these Thessalonians. Indeed, in chapter 1 of Second Thessalonians, we see that they were suffering greatly for their faith. 
you know, Jesus said, you know, you count the cost. You know, you don't go out and just build something and then uh, not counting the cost and understanding what's needed. Otherwise, you're going to be laughed at when you don't complete it. The reality is there is a temporal cost to following Jesus Christ. And that cost comes in many different ways. One is persecution. It's a temporal cost. And these Thessalonians, they were suffering at the hands of their countrymen. They were suffering for coming to Christ. And the Apostle Paul shares that, and he shares in chapter 1 that God hasn't missed a beat, that those who are bringing about this persecution, those who we see in chapter 2 have rejected the gospel, rejected Christ, that they're going to pay the penalty. They're going to pay the penalty for their sinfulness. And we see that Christ is going to come ultimately and be glorified, and that his saints are going to marvel in that, that there's the sufferings for the glories uh, to follow. And then we saw in chapter 2, as we're looking today, and we'll read through part of that, that there were some bad guys out there in the church. Oh, really? Yes, bad guys in the church. They creep in unnoticed. Uh, Jude says certain men have crept in unnoticed. And, and they come in, they sneak in, they distort the word of God. And they try to shake up those who are in the faith. And there were those who were doing that, and we'll read this in a minute. But they were saying, in essence, to these Thessalonians, that the day of the Lord has come. And we've studied this in many times, many different portions, so you can get the CDs. But for the Thessalonians, that would shake them up. They're in their trials, and the day of the Lord has come, God's judgment upon the earth. Wait a second. He's supposed to come for us first and deliver us before the wrath to come. Something's wrong. And so Paul has to correct that and share that, hey... You're, you're, you're okay, guys. Uh, don't be quickly shaken. Don't be, don't be tossed around. The day of the Lord, God's wrath upon this earth before Christ comes personally, will not come unless that apostasy comes and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the Antichrist. We've talked all about that. We've gone through that, and we've seen that, and we're going to just review that very briefly. But in our passage today, he moves to encourage these believers to encourage them because their destiny is not the destiny of those who have rejected Christ. Okay, so with that in mind, turn to Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and I'm going to read up to our passage. And again, we've gone through about three or four sermons already in this chapter, and so uh, a lot of it is kind of complex, but it's not complex, but it is. Um, so just if you need to review that, you can get those CDs. But our passage hinges on what we've studied already. So I'm going to read up to it. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. And it says here... Oh, my, I cut off my, my uh, portion here. Let me grab it here in my Bible too. I have my notes on my thing. I cut off the first two words here. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Hey... You know chapter one of four, chapter four of First Thessalonians, chapter First Thessalonians. You know the Lord's going to come for you. He's going to gather you together. You know that. He says in regards to that, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if from us. That's counterfeit, by the way. To the effect, the day of the Lord has come. Don't get shaken up. That so, if someone shares that to you, it's not true. And he's going to explain why. And we've seen this already. 
Let no one deceive you in any way, for it, that's the day of the Lord, will not come unless the apostasy comes first. When God's day of wrath and judgment comes upon this earth, the earth is going to have to have turned completely against him first. The apostasy is a complete turning away. There's going to be a wholesale turning away of those who would name the name of Christ. They're going to turn away. They're going to reject that. They're going to turn. The apostasy comes first, and that he says, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God and object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple, displaying himself as being God. That's the Antichrist. Okay, we talked all about that. Do you not remember while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? Paul's like, hey, I was with you for three weeks. I was telling you about this stuff. It's not too complex. Here's what God has said. Here's what's going to happen. And he says here, and you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains him will do so until he is taken out of the way or out of the midst. You see, Satan's un, unchained evil, in a sense, is, is restrained right now. It's restrained. God is restraining it. But he's restraining it through the church, through his spirit, in his people. There is a restraint on evil. But that restraint will be gone when God takes his people, when he comes to, get, to, to, to gather them up to himself. And when that happens, all hell will break loose. And as we've seen, this man of lawlessness will ultimately uh, declare himself to be God, the Antichrist. Okay, we went through all that, a lot of scriptures. But notice, he says here, uh, and when that, that, and then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one who's coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all powers, signs, and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. There's a time coming in this world where sin and evil is going to be dealt with directly. God is allowing it to go on right now because he's unwilling that any should perish. If he was to judge your sin and evil before you got saved, you would be judged and you wouldn't be able to be saved. He's gracious. He's patient. But there's a time when the world will, in a wholesale sense, will turn away from the Lord after God's people have been removed, taken away. There'll be some remnant that gets saved. But in a wholesale sense, the world will rebel against uh, with the Lord. And the Antichrist will be in charge. We'll have that all the stuff we've talked about. And that's when Christ will come, slay his enemies and the beast, and establish his kingdom. But it has to get to the worst it's going to get. And that's the day of the Lord. We're not going to go through it. And so Paul's explaining that. Thessalonians, don't get shaken up. You're not going through it. You're not going through it. And so he says here, he says, uh, with all power, signs, and false wonders, with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence that they might believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. You see, God's a gracious God. And he announces the truth. The truth is that we're sinners and that we need a Savior. 
And that He sent His Son Jesus Christ. He took on human flesh and He went to the cross and He bore our sins in His body on the cross in our place. God requires death for sin. God requires the wages of sin is death. And if Christ didn't come, then we would all die in our sins and we would pay the penalty for our sins forever and ever. But God sent His Son. He loved us so much. And He paid the penalty for us. And if you're willing to humble yourself, which God says to every man, declares to every man at all to repent, and you repent and trust in Christ, you will be forgiven. You will be given the righteousness of Christ. But if you reject that, reject the love of the truth so as to be saved, if you don't believe you're a sinner in need of a Savior, you don't believe that Jesus is God who took on human flesh and died and rose from the dead, you don't call upon Him, then you and your lot is the lot of those in the day of the Lord, that they might be judged who did not believe in the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. And so it's a pretty serious thing. We talked about it last time. And now we hear that. We go, wow, you know, some of your visitors are going, oh, this is a real exciting, encouraging sermon. Well, it is going to be encouraging because he's talking about the lot of those who are not the Thessalonian church. He's talking about those who've rejected Christ. And if you've rejected Christ, then yes, this is a very, very serious thing. But now he's going to move and talk to the Thessalonians in contrast and say, hey, but for you guys, this is what awaits you. And this is what you need to do in the midst of this difficulty. And here's our passage. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth. And it was for this he called you through our gospel, that you might gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. And as I mentioned, the Thessalonians were greatly suffering. And the Lord wants to encourage them. And so how can we be encouraged? Well, I think, first of all, we need to be giving thanks for what God has done for us. We need to be thankful. Notice in our passage here, uh, verse 13, and we need to be thankful always for our salvation. But we shall always give thanks to God, to give, give thanks to God for you, beloved brethren of the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. What a tremendous thing. Hey, they rejected the truth. They rejected the gospel. They chose to reject it. They're on their way to judgment. But we give thanks for you because God chose you to be saved. And you're going to be saved. And you are saved. And you're being saved. And you will be saved. And we'll talk about that. In contrast to those who have rejected the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, those who will go through the horrifying, terrible day of the Lord if they're alive at that time, though they're going to be deceived, they're going to be and then judged, they're going to be destroyed eternally in the punishment in the lake of fire, a horrifying fate. In contrast to them, we give thanks for you. We give thanks for you. He says, but we should always give thanks. The word is, we're indebted, we're obligated. We're obligated in light of what God has done in you and what he's doing to give thanks to him. We're obligated to always give thanks to God for you. 
brothers and sisters, we've seen throughout the book of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, Paul was so thankful for their salvation, thankful to God for saving them. They were truly saved. They weren't make-believers. They weren't phonies. They weren't uh, uh, pseudo-Christians. They really, truly turned to God from idols. They truly got saved. He says we should always give thanks uh, to God for you. And that thankfulness is for their salvation. We see that. And notice he gives and he, he shares a term of endearment, a term of love. Brethren, beloved by the Lord. The term beloved here is a perfect passive form of agape. What does that mean? It means that it's a love that comes from God. It's come already and it still is there. You were loved, done deal, and you still are loved, but it has nothing to do with you. It's God doing it to you. Beloved by the Lord. Beloved brethren by the Lord. Tremendous reality that salvation is based on the love of God. Salvation is based on the love of God. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life or everlasting life. John 15.13, Greater love has none than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, By this the love of God was manifest in us that God sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. That means satisfaction. God satisfied with Jesus, not satisfied with your work. Satisfied with Jesus' work. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. But God demonstrates his own love for us, that why were we yet sinners? Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live now, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave or delivered himself up for me. We are brethren beloved by the Lord. Notice he says brethren. It's a family relationship. Yes, God created everyone. Yes, he did. But we are not in his family until we trust in Christ and we are adopted into his family. We become his children and thus brothers and sisters of one another. A greater family than our physical family. Yes, how blessed is a physical family where you know each other in Christ, but how much greater is the family in Christ? 1 John chapter 3, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. Wretched sinners, wicked hearts and minds, actions. Think about all the wicked stuff you've done. And he called us and he forgave us and we're in his family. What love is that? That's tremendous. It's tremendous. So then, salvation is tied up in the love of God, and we are his children because of that love through Christ. So Paul is obligated to always give thanks to God for these beloved brethren. But why? But why? Notice what he says. Because God has chosen you from the beginning 
for salvation. Now, some notes may say the term from the beginning is the term first fruits. There's some different uh, manuscripts there. Um, we definitely the first fruits of salvation. There's no doubt about that in terms of coming in the new the church and and this this uh, this uh, after Christ rose from the dead certainly. But I think it's better probably from the beginning. I think it fits the context better from the beginning. He chose you from the beginning. Now wait a second. He chose you. Now we get into the the sadly divisive topic of election. And unfortunately, it's divisive, but it shouldn't be divisive at all because God's Word just talks about it. But unfortunately, the many hyper-reformed type churches have made one doctrine the pinnacle of their theology, and they built everything else around it, and they have thus twisted other truths uh, to line it up with one doctrine. Whenever one truth in Scripture is raised above others, then it causes error. And the reality is, yes, there is election here. We're going to see it, but that's in the context of also God's love for us and human responsibility to respond to the gospel. So we have here uh, this statement, he has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. The term chosen here means simply that, to choose. And it's used in a few other places, and it has the exact same meaning. In Hebrews chapter uh, chapter 11, it speaks of Moses choosing ill treatment with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. He made a choice. Passing pleasures of sin, ill treatment with the people of God. He chose ill treatment. Philippians chapter 1.22, Paul says, But if I am to live in the flesh, uh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. Okay, that's one word. Now, now that it means to make a decision, to make a decision. Now, this is not the word that we get uh, the word electos from, because there's another word that means to choose also that we see in other places. This one just means to choose, but it's it's a synonym. It's it's it means to choose. But we have seen in other places this idea of what we call election or God choosing. Turn to First Thessalonians, just one letter back, First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. And this is after Paul gives thanks. After Paul gives thanks, Jim, after Paul gives thanks uh, for uh, their salvation. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, notice you have this nearby, and same, same thing, right? His choice of you. His choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You really got saved, so that's an affirmation. He chose you. That's what he's saying. Knowing, beloved, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Now, this word is where we get our word electos. It's elege. It speaks of the act of picking or choosing, and it implies uh, a selection among others who are not chosen. That's what it means. And it occurs uh, six times, and every time it occurs, it speaks of divine election upon human objects to bring them into a saving relationship with himself. 
It's spoken of the Apostle Paul after his conversion when the good Ananias in Acts 9 questions the Lord about Saul, this bad guy formerly. And he says, the Lord said to him, go, in response to Ananias, go for he is a chosen instrument, an elect instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and sons of Israel. It's used four times in the book of Romans, clearly relating to God's independent choice of mankind in salvation. Now, a straightforward straightforward reading of Scripture, uh, which cuts across the grain of man's pride, reveals that God chooses in advance who will be saved. And there are so many passages that share this reality. I'll share a couple. Ephesians 1, chapter 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. I can't argue with that. That's what it says. But see, our pride gets in the way. Our pride. If you want to argue with it, pride is coming up. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. And so those who have been chosen of God... 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain of his calling and choosing you. And as we'll see in our passage, because God has chosen you from the beginning for sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And Scripture actually identifies believers as the chosen. As the chosen. Now, we're not the frozen chosen, we're the chosen, right? Right? Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? That's the word, God's chosen. Titus chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God. Chosen of God. We have 1 Peter chapter 1, an apostle, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen. 2 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. 2 Timothy 2, 10, for this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that they may also obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus and with its eternal glory. So the God of the universe who created all things and holds all things together has a right to do what he wants to do. He has a right to choose, and we know he's good, and we know everything he does is good. And we have to be careful now that we don't take one doctrine and take it above other doctrines and effectively twist the truth of God. The reality is, yes, God does choose us but we also have a responsibility every single one of us to respond to the gospel and there's a conviction of the spirit of god to everyone through the gospel the gospel is powerful it pierces the division of soul and spirit joints and marrow god's word and everywhere we see this idea of being chosen right nearby we see man's responsibility take for instance in the book of romans we see God's choosing, but then we have the statement. If you, then we have whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever. Whoever. There's no restriction. It is open to all. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. That means you can respond or not respond. You're being convicted. I'm sinful. I need a Savior. And you can harden your heart. 
Don't do it, God says. Which means you have an opportunity to respond when convicted. Even God in human flesh grieved over those who had rejected him. Matthew 23, 37. No Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. How does that work? God chooses, and what he does, he does, but yet man has the responsibility to respond, and and God even shows in the moment a desire to be saved, and people are unwilling and are not saved. How does that work? I'm not God, so I'm just take it as what God says. Ezekiel chapter 18.32, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord, therefore repent and live. You will have no excuse. You won't be able to say, well, you didn't choose me. So I have, you you know, no, it doesn't work that way. The offer is available to everyone. It is open. And when you're convicted of your sin, respond. Don't harden your heart. If you hear his voice. Many are called, but few are chosen. Matthew 22, 14. So then we see throughout this sense of election, you know, but again, I warn you, there's all kinds of theological reformed theologies and blah, 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 blah that use this as the pinnacle of their theology and they twist the rest of it. Just read the word of God, believe it for what it is and leave it where it is because we can't figure it out beyond that. Otherwise, we get prideful. And I find the reformed guys are usually the intellectual guys and usually the prideful guys who hear what God's words and they go, this plus this equals this. And they start figuring out everything that you can't figure out. And you got the other people who are emotional on this side, and they just go, how can God do this? I don't understand. They do the other thing. Take what God says. Believe it. Believe it. And praise him if you're saved, because that does mean you were chosen. You see? And that's the only way we can know, okay? So praise him for that. So back in our passage, he talks about... uh, uh, that we were chosen for salvation, chosen from the beginning for salvation. Chosen from the beginning for salvation. Tremendous, tremendous. You know, if you're going through difficult times, thank God for being saved. Thank God for being saved. That's the first thing. But we thank God for him choosing you. We thank God for your salvation. Thank God for being saved. He says here, chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Now we need to understand the process too. What is salvation? Salvation in scripture is is given in three tenses basically. We were saved when we trusted in Jesus Christ. We're justified, declared righteous. We are being saved right now and we will be saved our salvation the culmination of it and so he says for salvation being saved from our sins you see being saved means you're in peril when they saved that hiker from the cliff uh, he was in peril of dying he was saved we are in great peril because of our sin Because God is a holy God, and he must judge every thought, word, and deed, or he would not be a righteous God. And so thus, he sent his son, and he judged him instead. 
And he died for our sins. And when you trust in him, we get the forgiveness of sins. Salvation. Salvation from our sins and the penalty of sin. But we need to understand this current process. Notice our passage. For salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. This is a great passage. This explains a ton. This gives us the whole paradigm of how we grow in Jesus. It really does. You know, there's all kinds of books out there, discipleships, one-on-one, da-da-da-da, books on how to grow in Jesus. It's everywhere. This verse tells us how to do it. This verse does. Through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. You see, it's interesting, uh, as I mentioned, our salvation is spoken of in different tenses. Our initial salvation being separated from sin unto God. We're sanctified unto God, as we'll see. But then right now, God is saving us from sin in a sense that he is making us like Jesus. He is, he is changing us. He is delivering us from that. He is setting us apart. And indeed, this word sanctification, hagiasmas, it comes from the root word holy. It means to be separated. In some versions, it's actually translated holiness. And so sanctification is the process of being set apart from sin unto God. And the reality is when we first were saved, we were set apart from sin unto God. We were actually sanctified in that sense in our initial salvation. We see um, in Hebrews 10.10, by this will, that's Jesus giving himself for us, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 is great. You know, uh, I was walking around one time sharing, uh, you know, about the church just a few years ago, and the lady goes, well, I'm a lesbian, and I think I'm fine. I said, well, here's what God says. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, nor nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And I said, you know what? I was identified by my sin. We all are identified by our sin. But God saved me, and he can save you. He says here, and such some of you were. You were. You were identified by your sin. But he said, you were, and but you were washed. You were sanctified. God took you out of your sin. He justified you. You were sanctified. But there's another process of sanctification which happens now. But it happens the very same way when we were saved. It's through the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, and faith. It's the same thing. Same process. So then we see here God is changing us now. This appears to be speaking of our more current and prominent present spiritual reality for believers which is the ongoing being set apart from sin, the sanctification. Remember we saw in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, he says, and this is the will of God, your sanctification. God's will for you, believer, is to be set apart from sin. He's, he's working in your life to change you, to pull you apart from sin. But how does he do that? Well, we see in Romans chapter 6, 19, he says, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness, resulting in sanctification, being separate. But there's a process how this is done. It's extremely important that we see this. This is how God does this. Through sanctification 
by the Spirit and faith in the truth. There are two sides to the process of sanctification, but they're together. There are two sides. We have, first of all, the Spirit of God that sets us apart, and it's by faith in the truth that this happens. Now, how does the Spirit of God do this? The Spirit of God brings forth the Word of God and convicts our hearts. We have uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures inspired by God and is profitable for, for teaching, for reproof. It exposes me. It's, ah, man, I blew it. I, my bad attitude, whatever it might be. It corrects me, shows me the way I should be, and it trains me for righteousness. And God does that through his spirit, but I have to believe what he has said. The spirit of God works through the word of God, and we respond by faith in the truth of God and the God of the truth. That's sanctification. Now, you can have the word of God convicting you, the spirit of God convicting you. You can quench the spirit. You can push it down. But when you receive what God is doing through his word, you don't harden your heart and you believe the truth. See, if you believe it, you're going to do it, right? Right? You believe it, and God changes you. You become more and more and more and more like Jesus. That's the process of sanctification. We're not to be conformed to this world, but transformed through the renewing of our minds, that we would prove what God's will is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect, Romans 12. That's God's will to be sanctified. So he is working in our lives through his word when we believe it. He's changing us, making us holy in every area of our lives. In our personal relationships, we, we, we have a bad attitude. He convicts us. Whoa, you know, word convicts us. We believe that it's wrong. We believe it's sin against him. We see what he wants us to do, and we trust him to help us do that. That's sanctification. By the spirit and faith in the truth. That's the process. So you've got to be in the Word of God. If you're not in the Word of God and the God's Word is not in you working richly, thy word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. It's not a mechanical thing. It's God's Spirit through His Word convicting my heart, changing my mind. And then I believe it. And I believe it. The Spirit of God is the one that discloses the things of God, discloses the things of God to us. We see in John 16. Turn to John 16. Through the Spirit and faith in the truth. John 16. Jesus is with his disciples. He has been, in effect, the Spirit of God to them. And you can look at that. You want to see how the Spirit functions? Look at how Jesus functioned with his disciples for those three years. Look at how he corrected them. Look at how he addressed them. Look at what he did. Look at that. Look at how he trained them. Look at how he built them up through his word. And then he says, hey, I'm going, but I'm going to send you another comforter, the term another in Greek, another of the same kind, and he's going to be with you forever, the Spirit of God. And then he talks about it. He talks about the Spirit of God. Chapter 16 of John. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own initiative, but what he, he, whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and disclose it to you. All things that the Father have are mine, therefore I have said, he takes the things of mine and will disclose it to you. The Spirit of God reveals the Word of God 
And we are able then to function, we see, to, to, to grow and be more like Christ. Remember what Jesus said in John 17, 17. Sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word is truth. Take the, your word. He's praying. He's in his humanity. Praying to the Father. Take your word and set them apart in it. You got problems? Go to God's word and let him change your heart and mind. That you would be set apart and different. It's a process. We never get there fully. That's why I'm so thankful that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a great God. We realize, oh, the word convicts us. We realize we're, the spirit through the word convicts us. Ah, oh, we confess our sins. We're forgiven. We're forgiven. We see this about the word working in our lives illustrated in the context of marriage and what Christ did for us. Ephesians chapter 5:25. Husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, set her apart from sin, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. The word. That's what he does. That's what he does. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. God does the work by his spirit, through his word, when we respond and believe it. If you don't believe it, you don't respond, you don't get sanctified. If you're not in the word of God, you don't get sanctified. We had read earlier Psalm 1, the blessed man who meditates in the word day and night. Not mechanically, but because there's a desire. He treasures it. Proverbs chapter 1 and 2 treasures it more than gold. Lord God, it's your word to me. It's your word to me. So don't quench the spirit. We can put out the spirit's influence in our lives by being hardened in sin. Not renewing our minds, not getting into the Word of God, just getting up each day and doing our thing. Want to quench the Spirit? Do that. Put the Word in your heart. Allow God to use it to change you, to change you. God's Spirit does His work in our lives when we allow Him to do so through the Word of God. But we should always give thanks for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. So how can we endure difficulties that come for following Jesus? First of all, we need to be continually thankful for our salvation in Christ. Secondly, we need to allow his Spirit to work through the Word in our hearts Believing what he said. We need to understand the salvation process. Right? And then notice, we need to protect our hearts and minds looking forward to the goal of our salvation. We need to look at the goal. And notice verse 14. And it was for this, back in Second Thessalonians 2. He called you through our gospel that you might gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is, this is an amazingly packed statement here. And it was for this he called you. For what he called you? Sanctification by faith and truth. Salvation. Salvation. It's salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith and truth. It's, that's why he called you. He called you through the gospel. God calls people into a relationship with himself through 
the gospel. The word gospel means good news. It's a good message. It's the message concerning God's Son, Jesus, who took on human flesh and died for our sins and rose from the dead. He paid the full penalty for our sins on the cross, the perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God. It's the good news that you're not going to die in your sins if you trust in Jesus Christ. It's the good news that God will not pour his wrath out on you if you trust in Jesus Christ. It's the good news that you will have eternal life if you trust in Jesus Christ. And it comes to the gospel. Powerful word. Powerful word. Thessalonians accepted it as God's word. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 And for this reason we constantly give thanks that when you receive from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you. Praise the Lord, you saw it as God's word. James 1.21, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. Came in the gospel, the powerful, spirit-convicting gospel. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1. For it is the power of God unto salvation. God uses the foolishness of the gospel to shame the wise. It's God's power through the word of God. That's why uh, we don't need to have all these these routine, these little things that people use to try to trick people into the kingdom, whatever it is. Little systems of salvation or, 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 or I forget the word, apologetics, whatever it might be. Yes, if you want to talk about something and share what God did in light of that, that's fine. But trying to manipulate someone into believing is not going to work. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 1, he says, And I came to you, brethren, because the Corinthians were wise guys, and they got prideful. And he says, I came to you. Here's how I came. I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. I didn't come with a snazzy, jazzy sermon. I didn't come all set up in that way. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. That your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. This should be preaching 101 at every seminary, but it isn't. Total dependence on Christ, allowing his word to be proclaimed. I mentioned this earlier, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It, it cuts through the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. God's word is powerful. Don't ever forget that. It's powerful because we have a powerful God. Isaiah 55, 11, So shall my word which goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return void to me without or empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding, succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Powerful gospel. And he calls us through it. Don't set the conviction aside. Don't harden your heart. When God is convicting of your sin, don't harden your heart. If you hear his voice. He called us through the gospel. Now the gospel we see is uh, in this calling is tremendous. The calling that God calls us. He talks about this calling. We've been called by the grace of God, Galatians 1.6. We are to be like the Holy One who called us, 1 Peter 1.15. We were called out of darkness into his marvelous light, 1 Peter 
we have a heavenly and holy calling, Hebrews 3, 1 and 2 Timothy 1, 9. And God, who is faithful, called us into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, 1 Corinthians 1, 9. He called us into a relationship with him through the gospel. And notice what our passage says. We have the ultimate goal. It's amazing. And it was for this. He called you into a relationship with him uh, through our gospel. Notice this. That you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. Gain the glory? The term gain speaks of possessing or acquiring. We're going to gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. term Lord speaks of deity. He is the I Am. The term Jesus is his human name, Yahshua. Yahshua, Yahweh saves. The I Am saves. That's what Jesus means. And Christ is the term for Messiah, the anointed one, the one who would suffer and die for us before he would be the glories to follow, who would reign forever and ever on the throne. Yet what does this mean to gain, possess, uh, acquire the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, you might remember back in 1 Thessalonians 1.12, Paul wrote to them and told them that we were called into his own kingdom and glory. We're called to glory, and it's his glory. We've barely tasted what's to come. 1 Peter 5.10, And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. He's called us to his eternal glory. We see in the Old Testament his glory has to do with his goodness, his character, his love, his, his, the manifestation of his truth and, and grace. Everything that is good. Philippians 3.21 says God will transform our humble state of our bodies into conformity with the body of his glory. We're going to be glorified. There's going to be a day where there's no more temptation, no more sin, no more sorrow, no more death. We will be glorified and we will spend a glorious eternity with the living God in his glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. Let's turn there. You see, Paul had this understood. He understood this, so it, 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 it flavored his opinion of this life. It helped him see the difficulties rightly because he understood of the glory that was coming. 2 Corinthians 4, 16. Now, he's just done a discourse on, basically, we've almost died for following Christ and died for you guys. He said that, and now he's going to say... Therefore, we don't lose heart. 4.16, 2 Corinthians. But though our outer man is decaying, hey, we're getting beaten, we're almost dying. He says, yet the, our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction, hey, in the balances, it's not a lot, even though it feels like it, is producing for us what? An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And he says, for we look not at the things. We don't stare at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. But the things which are not seen are eternal. Turn to Romans chapter 8. There's glory for believers. Yes, you are suffering right now, and, and you're being tempted by bad guys to think it's not what it really is, to get your heart off of the glory and eternity and onto your temporal circumstances. Don't buy into it. 
Romans 8.16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. I believe that's through the Word of God, by the way. And if children, heirs, and if heirs of God, fellow heirs, or joint heirs with Christ. That's quite amazing. If indeed we suffer with him, in order that we may be also glorified with him. For I, now Paul had to make this consideration. The word means I'm reckoning it without any emotion. It's, a, it's an accounting term. For I consider the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's not worthy. We have no idea how glorious our future is for those who have been saved by Jesus Christ. We have no idea. And I believe those who aren't saved don't have no idea how bad it's going to be. And it was for this that he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this leads us to the application of the passage. Here's the application. Look back, chapter 3, verse 15, 2 Thessalonians. Here's our part. He's told us to be thankful. He's told us to understand the process of salvation, to look forward to glory. But it all has to come together in some manner, and here's how it comes together. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. The term so then is consists of two Greek words. One by itself could have said basically the same thing. It's really powerful. The first one means uh, accordingly then, and the second one means uh, then, therefore, accordingly. <laughs> it's like, therefore, because of this great reality of eternity... And God having saved you in the glory, therefore do this in light of the bad guys that are trying to shake you up and mess you up. Do this. Well, do what? Brethren, your brothers and sisters in Christ, stand firm. Two things. And then hold to. The term stand firm comes from the Greek word stako. Uh, we see it, we saw it back in 1 Thessalonians 3.8. Paul says, now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. It's like a stake. You're stake that you're not, you're not going back, you're not going forward. You're standing firm in the Lord. The term hold to comes from the word krateo, which means to grasp or to possess strongly, to seize. It speaks of might. Hold on to grasp, possess strongly, seize what? The word of God. That's what we're going to see. Stand firm in Jesus and grasp the word of God. This is what you need to do. Hold to it. Don't be taken by false, captive by false teachers, shaken up by circumstance, trials, and persecutions. Stand firm in Jesus. He's a strong tower. The righteous run in and are safe. And then grasp, seize what? The traditions which you were taught, whether by word or mouth or by letter from us. Remember, this is the beginning of the church. The foundation, the apostles and prophets, Christ being the cornerstone. And he noticed it's all from us. He doesn't say from anyone else. Here he's talking about the apostles. The traditions and the things that were written to you from us. It's the word of God. It's the word of God. It's the word of God they were taught, either personally or by letter. 
grasp onto it. Grasp it. Hold tightly. Stake yourself out in Christ. Don't get bent over. Don't go back. Stand firm. Stand firm. Be thankful for your salvation. Understand what God's doing. He's taken His Word by His Spirit and He's changing us. Look to the glory. He'll talk about it in chapter 1 Thessalonians 5 about the helmet of the hope of salvation. Look to the glory that's coming. Hold fast to the Word of God. That's what we're to do. And God will protect us when we obey Him in this way. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. And uh, I pray that we would be those who hold and grasp it tightly in our hearts. That we don't uh, willy-nilly think about it, but that we put it firmly in our hearts. That we hide it and treasure it. That we know that you use your word when we trust you by your spirit to make us like Jesus. Lord, thank you so much for the salvation we have, that we've been chosen for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit, your Spirit and faith in the truth. Thank you. Help us understand the process. Help us be thankful and help us look forward to the glory we will have forever and ever with your Son. Pray this in his precious name.